the views expressed on TMI with Aldous Tyler are not necessarily those of WSUMFM, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, or the Board of Regents. Oh no, my friends, the views for the next hour are all mine. TMI with Aldous Tyler for Friday, January 7th, 2022. That's right. Welcome to a new year. Now, um, it's, um, it's, it's already started, uh, you know, in its own special way. Just before we got out of 2021, we learned that um, somebody who we were all ready to celebrate their 100th birthday, um, the grand lady, if you will, Betty White, uh, passed away at age 99 on January 31st of 2021. And unfortunately, I didn't hear the news in time to get it into my broadcast last Friday. Um and of course, I don't do celebrity news, so it's not like it was a major issue that I didn't have it. But I do want to make a quick mention of her because um, she was someone who quietly put her money where her mouth was, um, apparently funding the rescue of uh, animals from animal shelters uh, in New Orleans following her Hurricane Katrina. And not something, again, that she asked for any kind of publicity on. And in fact, it's pretty much now more or less coming out that she did so uh, now that she's passed on. Uh, because she, she didn't want any kind of uh, fame for it or, or any kind of recognition for it. She had the money. She had the moral that said, these poor animals need to be rescued. And she put her money where her morals were and uh, made sure that they were seen to. Now, I understand if your first reaction is Aldous. Wow. What about all the people that needed help during Hurricane Katrina? Well, you know, okay. I, I understand if that's uh, the way you want to take it. Um, Here's the thing. Whether or not the people received any help during Hurricane Katrina, those animals were going to suffer and die without the assistance Betty White provided. Okay. So I understand. Sure. Could have been good if she'd uh, focused on the others. And you know what? Frankly, we don't know. 
she may very well have, but it just might not have made um, an impression anywhere because again, she was quiet about where she put her financial aid uh, towards. But uh, the reason I'm bringing her up at all is I want to encourage you to take this as an example of knowing what matters to you finding that center within yourself and then acting on it. You don't have to agree with her. Maybe you would have uh, been one to help the people first and, you know, animals are unfortunate, but the people really needed more help, et cetera. Fine. That's up to you. Okay. And that's fine. If that's where your uh, moral compass is, and if that's what you would have done with the money, good. Keep that in mind. If you're ever in a position where you can help somebody, remember that that's part of your core moral foundation and act on it. Just like Betty, some 16 years ago, during the disaster of Hurricane Katrina, found that her moral compass said, hey, I'm well off enough. I've got the resources. No one else is thinking about these animals. Everyone who is thinking about helping um, those who are suffering from the hurricane are thinking of the human cost, and well, they should. But I, Betty White, am thinking about the animals when no one else is, and I have the resources, so I feel a moral obligation to follow up and put my resources where my morals are. So when I say be like Betty, first of all, be like Betty and live to 99 if you can. If you can. <laughs> um, but moreover, find that moral compass that you have and let it guide you. Not, don't just sit there and say, this is what I believe. Because how strongly do you believe something if you do not act upon your belief, right? It's like those who say, oh, love thy neighbor. That, that's, that's, a, that's a core foundational moral I have. Really? Maybe you should get around to doing that more. Hmm? Love thy neighbor as you love thyself. That's a scripture for those of you not religiously inclined. Um, and if that particular piece of scripture is something you say you hold dear, then make sure that you're following it. On the other hand, if you're humanist, um, I, I myself am not at all religious. Spiritual, sure, not religious. Um, remember that, of course, we are all equal. And if you hold that we are all equal, treat everyone on a baseline for equality. Right? Unless someone has personally demonstrated for that individual that there's something directly reprehensible about them, you should treat every single person as an equal. Because scientifically speaking, genetically, that's us. We are all the same. Primarily speaking, we have 
interesting variables that cause some amazing expressions of variety. But scientifically speaking, oh, humanist, we're all equal. So be like Betty White in as much as find your moral compass and make sure that when the opportunity presents itself, you are acting on the beliefs you espouse. Because it's great to talk pretty, but it means nothing if you don't take action. And and in a final statement about Betty White in particular, allow me to say that for anyone to have lived 99 years, almost 100, within weeks of being 100 years old, right? For anyone to have lived that long, and for me to have never heard a bad word about them, especially living in the Hollywood community where gossip is rife, that is an amazing accomplishment. So, um, Betty White, fare thee well. Thank you for all the years of entertainment. Um, And thank you for proving that you yourself had what it took to follow your own moral compass and be as good a human being as you knew how to be. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back.
And we're back, TMI, with Aldous Tyler. Now, last week, I uh, made sure to talk about the fact that the Center for Disease Control, uh, the CDC, of the Biden administration had decided arbitrarily to shorten the length of quarantine time down from 10 days to five days and saying that um, instead of requiring any kind of a test, they said, well, you know, if your symptoms are resolving by the time five days is out, then you can, you can go back to the workforce. Sure. Meanwhile, science, science, uh, the science on how infectious the coronavirus is and things like that shows that 20 to 40% in other words, roughly 30%, which is right between, but 20 to 40% of people remain infectious from days five to 10 after presenting symptoms. So what I mentioned at that point, because of how many people a day were uh, presenting with new symptoms, was that at that point, I was just saying, hey, look, that's like 80,000 or so people every day who on day five are going to still be infectious. Yeah, well, that that was back. That was back when it was 200,000 um, a day. On Monday, the United States reported a record 1,082,549 new COVID-19 cases on Monday alone. So let me update what I said last week. Let's just, for sake of argument, use the 30% number, which because they said 20 to 40%, fine. Let's say on day five, people who are still probably feeling better, their symptoms are resolving, as the CDC said, um, are still 30% of them are going to be contagious. On day five. Do you know how much 30% of a million is? I'll tell you. It's 300,000. So, five days after Monday, right? Ready? Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. As you prepare to go and make plans to go out, For Saturday of this weekend, the million people who newly reported COVID-19 on Monday are going to be allowed back out there. And of that million, roughly 300,000 of them will still be contagious. 300,000. That's more than the entire population of the city of Madison. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you understand what I'm getting at? And that's from Monday, right? And if you want to check my numbers or see where I'm getting them from, the uh, specific article pulling the Monday numbers here um, is from NPR, good old Wisconsin Public Radio, et cetera. And the uh, article was on January 4th saying the CDC resists pushback and says a test to get out of COVID isolation is not needed. Right. Even as 
all indications show that having only a five-day isolation period is going to let 300,000 infectious people back out there. They're saying, no, we don't, we don't need a test on the fifth day. Now, what they did say was, you know, if you have access to a test and you want to test, the best approach would be to use an antigen test towards the end of the five-day isolation period that they're recommending. And if that test results positive, then an infected individual should continue to isolate until day 10. Yeah. If the test's negative, then they say, yeah, the person can end isolation but continue to wear a well-fitting mask around others, both at home and in public, until day 10. Right, okay. But here's the thing. There's no requirement of it. They say, oh, if you want to, this is when you should do it. If you want to. What that means is that there's absolutely no obligation for employers who are the ones who are pushing so hard to keep the 10-day number out, right? They want it down to five days. Hell, they'd want it less than that. They would, except on four days, the transmissibility percentage is even higher than 30% on average. Um, But, 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 again, the point is, there is no obligation for employers to provide testing so that on day five, they know whether or not the person's testing negative or positive. No, because it's not required. So there's no obligation for employers to require the test or to, pardon me, not only just require it, there's no requirement for employers to provide the test, right? It's up to the individual who's sick to go ahead and get their own test, and then tell their employer, hey, look, um, day five, and I'm still showing positive, I should stay the whole 10, right? And because of that, there's no reason why the employer can't just fire them for saying, oh, you, you on purpose went out and got a test just so you could stay home more, because it's not required. If it was required, that would protect employees from employers seeing getting tested as some form of rebellion. Oh, I see. You just didn't want to come back. So you went and got a test when you didn't have to get a test just so you could give me a negative result. Really? Now, here's here's the worst thing, too. So the CDC explained themselves briefly. They're like, well. You know, studies are suggesting that it's only a small percentage of people, like between 25 to 30 percent, that are actually self-isolating the full 10 days. So we're just going to cut it back to five days. (laughs) Okay, hang on, hang on, hang on. That's not how you run a center for disease control. You do not fit your recommendations to the misbehavior of people in controlling a disease. You fit your recommendations around what will control the disease effectively. You don't say, oh, well, you know, shoot, most people don't actually wash their hands like they ought to, so we're just going to stop recommending it. Really? My entire life, People have not washed their hands like they should, right? 
How common is it that people don't wash their hands like they ought to, right? But the recommendation has always been there. Please wash your hands. That way, employee, employers pardon me, were required that their staff had to wash their hands, right? Even if the staff didn't want to, even if your average person didn't want to, that didn't matter. Your recommendations, CDC, which is what employers use as their legal obligation, must follow the science, not the bad behavior of humanity in not containing this disease. Otherwise, what are you? What is your purpose, Center for Disease Control, if you're making your recommendations based on the behavior that is spreading the damn disease? Well, I've got an answer for that. It's not a pretty answer, but I've got an answer for exactly what the Center for Disease Control function is right now. Health authorities right now are calling on the public to accept mass illness and death for the sake of maintaining full economic output. Right? And you know why? Because while the rich haven't lost a penny and in fact are richer than ever, and, and please, let me make sure I'm not understating this for you. Corporate profits in the United States are at record high levels. Not just relative, by the way, to previous years, but relative as a percentage of gross domestic product, as percentage of GDP, corporate profits are at record highs in the United States relative to percentage of GDP. That's all-time record. That's not just, oh, well, inflation, so it's record. No, I mean as a percentage of GDP, all-time record high profits for corporations right now. Right? Right? It's true. The billionaires have done better than ever. And not in spite of deaths, but because of them. Right? So the CDC is trying to get everybody back out to work. And are people going to die? Sure. Do the rich care? No. No, they don't. Because they're able to make their profits soar, even as we're dying to line their pockets. And because, as we warned, the Biden administration is so very corporate friendly, because of that, We have a Center for Disease Control that's not controlling the disease, but is rather controlling the public so that deadly disease be damned, the rich keep making their money. Now, am I saying the Trump administration, CDC, did any better? No. No, of course not. Because both the Trump administration and the Biden administration are very rich friendly. They're corporate friendly. Trump set up the conditions and continued the conditions under which the rich could make money while people are dying, and the Biden administration just keeps rolling on. It's not acceptable. It's not acceptable. And we shouldn't be putting up with it. 
If you are a member of the Centers for Disease Control and you are knowingly crafting your recommendations that are then taken as the legal obligations of employers around the bad practices that you know, you know, scientifically know, help spread disease, you should be ashamed of yourself. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. Yes. On WSUM 91.7 FM in Madison. Hallelujah. My Savior, man. No one personal Jesus Christ. It's your cure for the common media. Airing every Friday at 5 p.m. Central. Podcasting every Monday evening. I like it. I think he likes it. Want some more? Oh, yes. Check out TMI, TMI, TMI.com for podcasts and all things TMI. I know Kung Fu. Show me.
nobody wants what's coming, so nobody wants to see what's coming. That's um, a proclamation of Stephen Marsh, who this week released a new book called The Next Civil War. Um, it takes a look at uh, five possible um, ways we could go from here and how, uh, unfortunately, just about every single one of them winds up in some form of civil war or another. Um, and, and, and to what he said to begin with about nobody wanting what's coming, so nobody wants to see what's coming. He notes that on the eve of the first civil war, the most intelligent, the most informed, the most dedicated people in the United States could not see it coming. Even when Confederate soldiers began their bombardment of Fort Sumter, nobody believed the conflict was inevitable. The North was so unprepared for war that they essentially had no weapons. Now, in Washington, in the winter of 1861, Henry Adams, grandson of John Quincy Adams, declared that not one man in America wanted the Civil War or expected or intended it. South Carolina uh, Senator James Chestnut, who did more than most to bring on the advent of the Civil War, promised to drink all the blood spilled in the entire conflict. The common wisdom at the time was that he would have to drink not a thimble. The United States today is once again, according to everything Stephen Marsh can see, headed for civil war, and once again, it cannot bear to face it. The political problems that we're looking at are both structural and immediate. Now, let's, let's make sure we understand what this means. If a political problem is structural, that means there's a problem with the very structure of the politics of the day. That's causing the issue. And with the problem being immediate, that's to say that the problem isn't something you can just wish away. This is something that's causing a problem right now and will continue to do so for quite some time. Moreover, Stephen says the crisis itself is both longstanding and accelerating. So this is a crisis that's been coming for a while. And it's speeding up in how fast its arrival is impending. The American political system has become so overwhelmed by anger that even the most basic tasks of government are increasingly impossible. The legal system grows less legitimate by the day. Trust in government at all levels is in a freefall. I mean, just take a look at Congress with approval ratings hovering around 20%. The, these essentially cannot fall any lower. Right now, elected sheriffs openly promote resistance to federal authority. Right now, militias are training and arming themselves in preparation for the fall of the Republic. Right now. Doctrines of a radical unachievable messianic freedom spread across the internet or on conservative talk radio, which is most of talk radio, cable television in the malls. 
the consequences of the breakdown of the American system is only now beginning to be felt. January 6th, a year ago, wasn't a wake-up call. It was a rallying cry. The Capitol Police have seen threats against members of Congress increase by 107%. Fred Upton, a Republican representative from Michigan, recently shared a message he'd received. The message said, Upton, I hope you die. I hope everybody in your family dies. It's not just politicians. Anyone involved in the running of the electoral system are finding that death threats have become a standard aspect of the work life of election supervisors, school board members, a third of poll workers in the aftermath of of, uh, 2020, I should say, said they felt unsafe. Yeah. Poll workers, the people who are there to actually make sure the election runs. Over 33% say they feel unsafe. Under those conditions, party politics have become almost just a distraction. I mean, the parties and the people and the parties no longer matter much, one way or the other, blaming one side or the other. It just offers a weird variety of hope. You know, if only more moderate Republicans are in the office, if only bipartisanship could be restored to what it was. These hopes are not only reckless, but honestly irresponsible. The problem is not who is in power, but the structures of power. Now, the United States has burned before. The Vietnam War, civil rights protests, the assassination of John F. Kennedy and the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Watergate, all of these were national catastrophes, which remain in living memory. But the United States has never faced an institutional crisis quite like the one it's facing now. Trust in the institutions was much higher during the 60s. The Civil Rights Act had the broad support of both parties. JFK's murder was mourned collectively as a national tragedy. Uh, The Watergate scandal, in hindsight, was evidence of the system working. The press reported presidential crimes, and Americans took the press seriously in this case. The political parties felt they needed to respond to the reported corruption, right? That's, that's a check. That's a balance. Everything's cool. But you could not make any of those statements today with any confidence. Do you think that if the press actually reports presidential crimes that people are going to take it seriously? Do you think the political parties would feel that they must respond to the reported crimes? Really? So two things are happening at the same time. Most of the American right have abandoned faith in government as such. Their politics is increasingly the politics of the gun. The American left, unfortunately, is slower on the uptake. Hey, guys. We're starting to figure out that the system, which has been given the name of democracy, is less deserving of that name every year. So, and and here's the problem. No matter... Who is elected this year on the midterms or who's elected in 2024? We have an illegitimacy crisis. According to a University of Virginia analysis of census projections, by 2040, which is not as far away as you think it is, 30% 
of the American population will control 68% of the Senate because of how the Senate is, is, uh, is done up. Eight states are going to contain half the population. The Senate malapportionment gives advantages overwhelmingly to your uh, white, non-college educated voters. In the near future, a Democratic candidate could win the popular vote by many millions of votes and still lose the election. Uh, do the math. The federal system no longer represents the will of the American people. Seriously, think about this. When 30% of the population, because of how things are apportioned in the Senate, will control over twice as much a percentage in the Senate, that's, that's an absolute disgrace. Seriously. Uh, now, the right, political right, is, is preparing for a breakdown of law and order, but they're also overtaking the forces of law and order. Hard-right organizations have now infiltrated so many police forces, the connections, by the way, number in the hundreds, that they have become unreliable allies, police have, in the struggle against domestic terrorism. Now, this, this is not news to people who have listened to my show, but I'm just saying this, this is all part of what we're talking about here. Uh, a former FBI, FBI agent by the name of Michael German uh, worked undercover against domestic terrorists during the 1990s. He knows the white power sympathies within police departments that hamper domestic terrorism cases. He says the 2015 FBI Counterterrorism Guide instructs FBI agents on white supremacist cases to not put them on the terrorist watch list as agents normally would, because the police can then look at the watch list and determine that they are their friends. L let me... Repeat this to make sure you got this. The FBI, as of 2015, will not put white supremacists on terrorist watch lists, even though they normally would, because they know that if they put a white supremacist on a terrorist watch list, the local law enforcement in America will see that and likely identify whoever they've put on there, as one of their friends. This is despite the fact that these watch lists are among the most effective techniques of counterterrorism, but the FBI can't use them. The white supremacists in the United States are not a marginal force. They are inside the institutions. Recent calls to reform or to defund the police have focused on officers' implicit bias or policing techniques. The protesters are almost too hopeful. Activist white supremacists in positions of authority are the real threat to American order and security. Um, again, uh, former FBI agent German says, if you look at how authoritarian regimes come into power, they tacitly authorize a group of political thug, thugs pardon me, to use violence against their political enemies. That ends up with a lot of street violence, and the general public gets upset about the street violence and says, government, you have to do something about this street violence. And the government says, oh, my hands are tied. Give me a broad enabling power, and I'll go after these thugs. And of course, once that broad power is granted, it isn't used to target the thugs, they either become a part of the official security apparatus or an auxiliary force. 
anti-government patriots have used the reaction against Black Lives Matter effectively to build a base of support with law enforcement. Um, FBI agent German, former FBI agent German says, one of the best tactics was adopting the Blue Lives Matter patch. He said, I'm flabbergasted that police fell for that, that they actually support these groups. It would be one thing if anti-government patriots had uniformly decided not to target police anymore, but they haven't. They're still killing police, not Black Lives Matter. The other side, the Blue Lives Matter folks, um, those groups, anti-government patriot groups are still killing police. The police don't seem to get it that the people you're coddling, you're taking photographs with. These are the same people who elsewhere kill. The current state of American law enforcement reveals an extreme contradiction. The order it imposes is rife with the forces that provoke domestic terrorism. Just consider that in 2019, 36% of active duty soldiers claimed to have witnessed white supremacist and racist ideologies in the military, according to the Military Times. And at this supreme moment of crisis, what passes for the left in America is divided into warring factions that are completely incapable of confronting the seriousness of the moment. I mean, so right now there are liberals who retain an unjustifiable faith that their institutions can save them when it's absolutely clear they cannot. Um, what we need right now is, is to kind of team up and not, not keep ripping up each other because we have to abandon, first of all, any imagined fantasies on the left about the sanctity of governmental institutions that long ago gave up any claim to legitimacy. Sure, let's stack the Supreme Court. Let's end that filibuster. Let's make Washington, D.C. a state. Let the dogs howl. And now, before it's too late to do so, the moment the right takes control of institutions, they will use them to overthrow democracy in its most basic forms. I mean, they're already rushing to dissolve whatever norms stand in the way of their full empowerment. The right has recognized what passes for the left in America here has not, that the system is in collapse. But the right has a plan. It involves violence and solidarity with each other. They have not abjured even the Oath Keepers. Meanwhile, the left, well, our sport seems to be infighting. There will be those who say that warnings of a new civil war is alarmist. Now, Reality has outpaced even the most alarmist predictions so far. Imagine going back just 10 years and explaining that a Republican president would openly support the dictatorship of North Korea. No conspiracy theorist would have da even dared to dream it. Anyone who foresaw, foresaw dimly. The trends were apparent, but their ends were not. It would be entirely possible for the United States to implement a modern electoral system, to restore the legitimacy of the courts, to reform its police forces, to root out domestic terrorism, to alter its tax code to address inequality, to prepare its cities and its agriculture for the effects of climate change, to regulate and to control the mechanisms of violence. All of these futures are possible. There's one hope, however, that must be rejected outright. The hope that everything will work out by itself. That America will bumble along into better times. That will not happen. 
Americans have believed that their country is an exception, a necessary nation. If history has shown us anything, it's that the world does not have necessary nations. The United States needs to recover its revolutionary spirit. And I don't mean as some kind of inspirational quote here. I mean that if it is to survive, the United States will have to recover its true revolutionary spirit. The crises that the United States now faces in its basic governmental functions are so profound that they require starting over on a lot of them. I mean, the founders here understood government is supposed to work for living people, not a bunch of old ghosts. And now their ghostly constitution, worshipped like a religious document, is strangling the spirit that animated that enterprise. The idea that you mold politics to suit people, not the other way around. Does the United States as a country have the humility to acknowledge that its old orders no longer work? Hmm? Do we have the courage to begin again? You know, as we managed spectacularly at the birth of this nation. The United States requires the boldness to invent a new politics for a new era. It's entirely possible that it might do so. I mean, America is, after all, a country devoted to reinvention. I mean, look, I'm not saying everything's hopeless. But once again, as always before, the hope for America is Americans. But it is time to face what the Americans of the 1850s found so difficult to face. The system is broken all along the line. The situation is clear and the choice is basic. We either reinvent this nation or we fall into civil war. Now, again, if you want to read a very detailed look into this whole concept, The Next Civil War by Stephen March, that's T-E-P-H-E-N, by the way, March, M-A-R-C-H-E, just dropped uh, this week. So check it out if you want to read more about it. But uh, I can tell you this much. The political problems, as we said, are both structural and immediate. The crisis, long-standing and accelerating. We don't have time to wait or play games. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. Tongue. Stink it out. Don't swallow the 
animal is the human being because it has the capacity to change the world in a way that other animals do not. And it has the capacity to protect all animals, not just the cute ones. That's a quote from Harrison Ford. Uh, you may know him as Han Solo or Indiana Jones, uh, or you just may know him as the crotchety old curmudgeon that won't stop acting. But the fact is, is that he's quite the conservationist. And uh, it's kind of funny. He notes, for example, that um, when he made a recent trip to Africa and uh, he was looking at the wildebeest and he says, this is the uncutest animal in the world. They look like a collection of spare parts. 
What I'm looking at is not whether the animal is beautiful or not. I'm looking at the raw, visceral power of nature. He says we need a functional, prospering nature in order to survive on this planet. He says, for me, the complexity of nature is proof of the existence of what serves me as a god. He explained, I admit that there are many gods in the world, and I'm happy that everybody has found something to believe in above themselves and organize some kind of morality around. But nature is my god, yes. He then followed that up with saying, I'm scared to death about the denial of science. Science is real. Science is the most real thing in our world other than nature. I'm hoping we'll all get back to a place where we can really understand that science is tested knowledge. So, now I know I started off the episode talking about Betty White and what she does, and I'm winding it up here with Harrison Ford. And thank you for listening, by the way. But I wanted to bring this point out because I think it's important. Science is tested knowledge, and human beings, unlike any other animal on the planet, has the capacity, we have the capacity to change the world in a way other animals don't. It's up to us to make those changes. And if you want to see the world clearly for how it is, first of all, close your eyes, breathe deep, find that center within yourself, and then you'll be ready to see the world for how it is, and all you'll have to do is 